chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found a prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not, not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you for the reading, Pastor Shion. Thank you for the 
prayer, those presuppositionalist prayer by Pastor Sam. If you know, you know. If you don't, that's okay. All right. Uh, well, greetings, everybody. I want to greet also everyone watching from home. I think uh, the amount of people watching from home has been gradually decreasing. I believe last, last Sunday we had about 30 tuning in on Sunday and probably a few uh, you know, later that day. But I uh, want to welcome all of you at home, especially all the children, if you can wave at me. All right. Um, so after celebrating Easter Sunday uh, last week, uh, today <clears throat> we're back in our series in the book of Acts, and, and things are about to get more intense for Jesus' disciples. In the next chapter, for instance, Stephen, one of the first deacons of the early church, will be introduced, and he becomes the first one who, uh, who dies because of his Christian faith. So as we examine how life became more difficult for the early Christians and how they responded to the threats around them, uh, I believe we ought to prayerfully consider how we ought to respond to the challenges and threats we're seeing around us. And so I think for that reason, the current series we're in has been very uh, helpful. I hope you find it very relevant uh, to our times uh, today, I decided to divide the message in, in two parts. Uh, part one, uh, reflecting upon Satan's tactics to, to, to divide. Right, what kind of tactics does the, the enemy use to divide the church? And, and there, I want to focus on uh, the, the sin of envy and how often uh, how we see envy really dividing uh, the the church, uh, Christ's body. Okay, we'll, we'll spend uh, most of our time there. In part two, uh, I'll be focusing on our response toward those who seek to bind us, right? Those who seek to silence us, as we see here in this passage. How did the apostles respond? Uh, ultimately, they responded with rejoicing to suffer dishonor for the name, right? which is the title for the message, okay? So we'll unpack what that means all right, part, part one, uh, Satan's tactics to divide. <clears throat> Last time I mentioned that there are primarily two ways in which Satan tries to divide and destroy the church. You know, first, he uses uh, outward persecution to pressure the church right, to compromise its beliefs. Uh, just a couple chapters ago, uh, Jewish authorities chose to just pick out two apostles, right? It was Peter and John. And uh, these two men were pretty shaken. That's why they had to, you know, gather with the church and receive prayer and ask the Lord for boldness, right? That's how the persecution started. It was, but it was outward pressure placed on them. Secondly, though, we, we said that uh, Satan uh, tried, tries to divide and destroy the church from Within, not from without, but from within. And we saw that being played out through the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right, who became envious of Barnabas because Barnabas was getting all this attention and he was propped up to be this very incredibly godly figure and generous, you know, uh, character was like basically selling his land and, and devoting the proceeds to the church. And so, in order to get what he had, Right, to get that attention, 
They lied to God and to the church and were severely punished because of it. But it was division from within. It was sin from within uh, that we see the church really uh, wrestling um, to, to, to stay together, right? to stay unified. Uh, but Satan's attacks upon the church are relentless, as we'll be uh, seeing each week through the book of Acts. Because in today's story, what, what we see is uh, the degree of outward persecution intensifying. So it's not just two people anymore. Uh, actually, let's, let's trace back once again. You have, first of all, uh, outward persecution in this smaller form. You know, just two people being imprisoned and persecuted. Uh, I, I came up with this image on my own, right? Uh, I, I, I was thinking about, this is like a, a boxing match, right? And, and Satan has these punching combinations. And so he first, you know, throws us a quick jab, right, to kind of shake us up a bit. But then he follows it up with like a, uh, you know, a unexpected uppercut, right? Um, and then followed with a devastating, you know, let's say left hook, which is meant to, this, this is meant to, completely knock us out. And so that's what we kind of see here. You have, you have two guys being persecuted, but then it's followed with Ananias and Sapphira, right? This division from within, followed by all of the apostles now becoming uh, victims. They, they become imprisoned. They, they, they're thrown into jail, and they're being threatened never to speak or teach again in the name of Jesus. And this is an important, I think, uh, point to consider, the fact that Satan here, he, he seems to really target the leadership of the church. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Like, what, you know, what happens when shepherds who are called to tend to the sheep falter? What happens? Well, the sheep scatter. And I believe that's why Satan, he does have this tendency to hit the, uh, the shepherds first. Uh, and so leaders ought to be, uh, be you know, they, they have to be careful, especially pastors. But if you consider yourself a ministry leader, okay, uh, you're being sought after, right? Uh, the temptation is going to be probably greater for you than anyone else in the church. And so beware of that. And so this is an incredibly important moment in the life of the early church. But what's really interesting is the particular sin that the author of the book, Luke, highlights for us. And it's not the sin of pride or anger that you may expect that he identifies here, but it's rather the sin of envy or jealousy that he highlights. Right? Does that kind of surprise you? It's like, why did Ananias and Sapphira lie to God and the church? All right, Luke's explanation is because they became envious of Barnabas. And why were all the apostles thrown into prison and persecuted by the Jewish authorities? Right? His answer, again, is it's because they were filled with jealousy and envy. Why were they filled with jealousy? Well, because the apostles, during this time, from their perspective, possessed so much power and influence. I mean, they were doing amazing things, performing all of these miracles. It says in our text today, try to, try to think about like this visually. What, how would you have perceived it, okay? It says, many signs and wonders were 
regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And here's what's mind-boggling, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. (laughs) They were were so... See, it wasn't just people coming, you know, bringing the sick out to the streets. It's like, it was so crowded and jam-packed that they, they just wanted Peter's shadow to touch the sick. It's incredible. I mean, I, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, I mean, we talk about celebrity culture all the time, right? But this is something else. It says, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So it wasn't just a local phenomenon. It wasn't just one town. It was the surrounding towns, a regional thing. They brought the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And, and it says, they were all healed. Every single person who was brought to the apostles were all healed. And so imagine. Imagine the fame. Imagine the influence. Imagine the respect that these apostles received. And the Jewish leadership saw this. And they envied. They grew jealous. For those of you who may have wondered, why doesn't God allow such incredible miracles to be commonplace in our time? You know, uh, I want you to think about what would happen if God actually made miracles more commonplace in our time. And by the way, I'm not saying that miracles don't happen, okay? I absolutely believe in miracles and that miracles can be performed even today, okay? But I also want you to know that the apostolic period, right, this, this time period here where the apostles are still living and active, this was a very special time where miracles were performed with much greater frequency and in a way that more fully demonstrated God's amazing power. And it was like that because these miracles were meant to serve as signs that God's kingdom was being established among men and that the apostles were not frauds, but that they were authentic followers of Christ. So that the miracles themselves were meant to authenticate. I said this before, they were meant to authenticate their ministry. And so that, that's why it was so frequent and so, you know, amazing, mind-blowing, literally. That's a theological reason why we don't witness miracles today as much. But I believe that there's also a practical reason why God doesn't allow this to be commonplace in our time. You know, because think about what would happen, really, if any one of us was given such impressive and and jaw-dropping powers in this way. Right? Thousands of people, not just hundreds, but thousands of people. Not just in Fairfax here, but around the region, coming to you directly to receive healing. Not just that. It's like, I just want Pastor Paul's shadow. <laughs> if you can't touch me, I just want his shadow to fall upon me. I, I, like, I think about that, and I, I, can't, I would never be able to handle that. I, that would be difficult for me to live with, right? That kind of attention, right? Do you think any of you would be able to handle that kind of status and celebrity, you know, power? 
So I, so I personally, given what I just shared, I personally think that the apostles were kept humble mainly because of the persecution they were receiving. Right? Life, the difficulties of life kept them humble in spite of the amazing gifts that they received from God. And I, I believe that it was a form of God's grace that their lives were kept relatively short. I mean, in the span of a few weeks, they're going to start dying, martyred for their faith. You know, in, in a matter of a few years, all of them will be dead, right, with the exception of one. Right, that's how difficult their lives were. And so, you know, be careful what you wish for. Be careful of, you know, desiring such fame and power. And what, what tends to happen, by the way? What tends to happen uh, to the people around you, right? When they recognize that you have such power and influence, what do you see here today? Well, jealousy and envy set in, right? Envy is when you begin to feel bitter when others get it better, right? Someone defined it that way. Envy is despising those who have more than you. Right? That's how it's played out in the human heart. And uh, I, I don't think any of us should ever think that we are immune to such a sin or its potential to destroy. You know, we may think that envy is just a small thing. And, you know, I, I admit that it can, very, it can start very innocently. You know, uh, you know why, why does he get more likes or views than I do? You know, when my post or my video was just as good, you know, that, that's how it starts, very innocently. Um, why am I not invited to their wedding? I, I thought we were like close friends. Or why did he ask him to help and not me? Like, am I deficient? You know, is something wrong with me? Does, does he think I'm not useful? Right? That's how envy starts. And if you let envy fester without properly identifying it and repenting of it, then it will run its course and cause greater damage to your soul and to your perceived rival in the end because envy almost always, from what I've observed and what I've experienced myself, it almost always leads to the desire to destroy that which you envy. Have you ever experienced that yourself? I've actually been uh, thinking about this topic a lot over the past couple of years because of the amount of hatred and division we're seeing in our culture and even in the Christian church today, I mean, the amount of hatred and anger and division we're witnessing in our culture is at a new level, right? It's the next level thing, as many younger people would say these days. It's, it's next level stuff, right? Um, and I think most of you would agree with that. But the question is, what is causing all of this division, now, the sin of envy may not be the only cause. I don't think it is, but I think it's a very important one that, that is often overlooked or ignored. Okay? I, I want to see if these series of thoughts resonate with you because uh, not only have I detected this in me at times, but I've observed it in many others who seem to always be angry about something. Right? Uh, from my careful observation... If you've ever suffered from what's uh, often called an inferiority complex, right? Uh, I believe you need to be especially careful of what 
you grew up envying? Okay, what have you envied in the past? Because more often than not, as I said, you will seek to destroy that which you have envied. That's what happens in the human heart. In the story, in the story of Snow White, uh, it's the wicked stepmother right, who gazes into the mirror and says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And because there was someone else who possessed greater beauty, what happened to her heart? Envy set in. And that envy eventually led to hatred, which led to murder. And that's one of the most important lessons you can learn from Snow White, in my opinion. But today, the common question that's raised is really not concerning beauty, but rather it's concerning power. It's mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the most powerful of them all? If there are people that you perceive to be powerful, like in the case of the apostles here in this context, it's like, you know, we want to become like them for a while because we're envious of them, but eventually you'll do what you can to villainize and destroy them if that ever became a possibility. That's how the human heart tends to work. Now, some of you may have uh, seen this yourself, but it was fairly common that uh, Korean-American pastors, and I'm sure, you know, Asian-American, it's a broader phenomenon, but let me me speak to my context mainly, okay? It was very common that Korean-American pastors, let me say, 10 to 20 years ago, envied white pastors and their ability to lead congregations that were considered more mainstream, okay? And I've heard this directly from people, right? Um, and I, I can sympathize with that, given, given how things were. So if you served in a smaller Korean context, for instance, like I was, then you would be considered junior varsity, okay? And you would actually, they might not say it to your face, but you, you sense that people look down on you, like these, these more gifted people, okay? Um, because they're going on, you know, to do greater and better things. Right? They, have, they were given the ability to engage more effectively with the broader audience, okay? Um, I spent 10 years in Korea, okay? And so I felt a little bit behind in my, you know, English. <laughs> and, and these guys were more gifted in communication. So you can tell that they were a little bit more, you know, confident to, to speak to their broader culture. And so they were going to go on to do varsity stuff while I was stuck with junior varsity, you know, uh, material. So that, that was a perception, And it was at least one of the reasons why many Korean-Americans grew up despising their Korean heritage. It's not the only reason, but it was one of of the reasons. And they envied those who controlled the majority culture. And for the most part, the people who controlled the majority culture were who? Back in the day, it was, at least in, in my context, it was white conservative Christian men. Now, some of you may not want to hear this, but I speak the truth. And the truth is that in our world today, it's the secular, woke progressives, regardless of their color, okay, doesn't matter what color skin they have, as long as they're in that woke camp, it's, it's, 
they who possess the most power in our society because not only do they have the government completely backing them, but they also have powerful corporate America backing them now as well. It's a sad reality, but it seems like you can't truly be successful today unless you signal to everyone around you that you're part of the woke crowd because that's where the power is now centralized. But strangely enough, but not surprisingly, the, the, the prevailing narrative is that the white conservative man is still the one who possesses the most power. And I tell you that that, that may have been true a generation ago, but it's far from true today. All right? they're, they're treated as trash, essentially. I speak, I've spoken to enough of them to know. They feel completely muzzled powerless. The irony is that the most privileged and most powerful in our society today are acting as if they're the greatest victims. And so what I've come to realize is that past envy almost always evolves into present hatred that is often irrational. And this hatred is what we're seeing everywhere today. Envy has begotten hatred, and as I'm sure all of you would agree, hatred only begets more hatred, which is why it feels like the whole world is drowning in hatred and division in this present moment. What does the world need? More hatred, or does it need something better? Brothers and sisters, if you ever envied others in the past, whether they were specific individuals or a group of people, you know, maybe, maybe it was white America, or maybe it was black America for you, given maybe your experience with, you know, and, you know, your parents trying to run a small business. I know there's a lot of tension there with black America. Or maybe it was rich America. Okay? Or maybe it was poor America. Maybe it was an Ivy League school that rejected you because they thought you weren't good enough. Okay? I know many people who live with a chip on their shoulders because they, they were rejected by, you know, Harvard or UPenn. Or maybe it was a company that never gave you a chance and you grew envious and bitter, now you're angry all the time. If that's you, it will be a good time for you to examine yourself and see what you've done with them in your heart. Have you murdered them yet? Or are you on the path to murdering them? Because if you're angry and if you're a hateful person toward this group or that group, there is a very good chance it's because the sin of envy has taken root in your soul and it's corrupting you. It's destroying you and the people around you. I personally do not understand at all how Christians could encourage each other to stay angry and to constantly express selective outrage based on what the media says you should be outraged about. In my mind, that's incredibly worldly. You know? Don't, don't hop on the angry Asian bandwagon, please. Which brings us to part two. Uh, part two, our response toward those who seek to bind us, right? those who seek to silence us, those who seek to put pressure on us, those who seek to persecute the church. Yes, the cultural tide has turned, and it's not going to be easy to live our Christian faith or to live out our Christian faith 
in this extremely secular, progressive world we're now living in, okay? I, I think that's a given. And so I, I guess there's a few options for us, okay? So option one, uh, this is uh, multiple choice. Uh, we could either join those who are trying to cancel the church and express outrage along with them. That's one option. Joining, joining those who are in the, uh, I guess, the woke party, okay? Uh, and I, I think if you choose to do that, I'm not recommending this option. I'm saying it is an option. I've seen people do it. If you do choose that option, I don't think you'll be able to remain a Christian for too long, given the trajectory they're going, right? Um, and like I said, I know people who've sort of gone in that direction. I'm curious to see what will become of them in five to ten years. That is an option. Option two, you could wallow in self-pity and hide your true identity from the world around you by keeping your mouth shut most of the time, right? I think that's probably our, our default. That's our defense mechanism kicking in, right? Uh, I wouldn't recommend that option as well because we, we, are, we are called to live as outspoken ambassadors for Christ, are we not? We're not called to live as, uh, what's the term, um, what did I say earlier? Uh, secret service people or, or you know, uh, spies right, who, who conceal their identity, right? We're called to be ambassadors. And so there's a better option. It's the most difficult option, but it's what we see Jesus' disciples doing in our passage. You know, they, they were not driven by envy or anger or hatred, and they were not driven by fear either. Whenever they sense fear, they would ask God for boldness, right? And so they were committed to boldly sharing the message of repentance and forgiveness in Christ, even toward their enemies. In other words, they were committed to sharing the message of Christ, right? His message, what we often call the gospel. Uh, let's see more specifically how, how it plays out in this story. You know, they're imprisoned. Um, one, one interesting thing that happens is that an angel of the Lord appears. It, this doesn't happen all the time, but it happened here. An angel of the Lord appeared, and this angel opened the prison doors and, and brought them out. And, uh, you know, what did the angel say? What were the instructions given? Did he say, I'm opening the prison doors for you now. Run, run, seek safety. You know, go save yourselves from Herod's sword. Is that what they say? Or was that what the angel says? No. Now here's what the angel of the Lord says. I release you. Now go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this new life. In other words, this, this, this command is echoing the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission Basically, says, all authority in heaven and is given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, right, is, is the command. 
teach them all that I, not, not just a little bit, not just the easy parts that won't offend anybody, but all that I commanded you. you know, I, I emphasize this because sometimes I, I have to admit, I, I get the impression that some of you believe that sharing the gospel means just being nice to people and telling, that, telling them that Jesus loves them. Right? And I'm, I'm very sorry to say, but that cannot be the extent of what we share. Jesus and his disciples were not killed because of their inoffensive message. Right? They were committed to sharing all of the words from God. They taught people to observe all that God had commanded them. And so they weren't only saying that Jesus offers the grace of forgiveness, which wouldn't offend anybody, pretty much, but they were also calling people to repent of their sins, which means, brothers and sisters, that they had to be clear about what the law of God actually requires, like what sin actually is, right? To, to explain this from our context, it meant that they, they could not allow people to redefine what marriage is. That's redefining what sin is. That's redefining what good is, what, what, you know, what wrong is. You can't, you can't allow people to redefine what sexuality is. You can't allow people to redefine what gender is. Because that will be a redefinition of sin, of, of God's law, what he requires. You cannot allow people to redefine what, what racism means. It just works one way in our culture today. Even the other day, I, I, I saw something. The guy was serious. Like, minorities cannot be racist. It was a serious, it was serious expression. He really believes that. You cannot do that and expect to be a faithful presenter of the gospel. Being clear about what sin is is an important part of the gospel message, too. And I want you to really think about that because that's the part of the gospel that's being messed around with right now. But if you mess around with one part of the gospel, you're going to be left with no gospel at all. So take heed that this is no small matter. This kind of teaching is corrupting the church. Here's what the apostles say to these Jewish leaders. This is their gospel presentation to them. Okay? The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed. They keep on doing that. Why do they do that? Right? They're going to get themselves in more trouble if they... They keep on doing this. I would advise them not to, but... This is, what they, this is their presentation. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And so... Can we agree that this is not the most winsome presentation? But can this mean then that clarity is actually more important to God than any winsomeness that we can manufacture? You know, uh, I, I, I do believe that in our culture, winsomeness is highly overvalued. It's what people teach. If you want to reach the younger generation, you have to be winsome. And winsome people, from what I've seen, they're never direct, they're never clear, right? It's hard to actually know what they're saying. 
But this is how the, the apostles, the faithful apostles, present the gospel. And they continue, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In other words, they're saying, repent of your sins, leaders, and believe in Jesus who is leader and savior. How did they respond? When they heard this, they fell on their knees and repented. No, right? That's not what, no, that's not what They were enraged, it says. And they wanted to kill them, was their response. So let me ask you this. Does this mean that they failed in their gospel presentation? Does, does this mean they're lousy missionaries? Because those who they're preaching to wanted to kill them? I hope we don't conclude that way. You know, would, would most modern-day church growth specialists recommend such an approach to evangelism? I doubt it. But who should you trust more? You know, for our Cornerstone members, I would always prefer that we value clarity over winsomeness or even agreement. And I'm not telling you to be nasty to people, but be clear. Right? That, is, that is, you can be clear and loving and by the way, I, I have a huge problem in, in how love, love is defined by, by the church today. You know, love means basically don't offend. Love means basically be nice. That's not what love is. Right? To be unclear and vague about the gospel is, is an unloving act. To so be clear about God's word. And so... Keep in mind, there's a reason why God freed the apostles, right? He didn't free them so that they can kind of live lives according to their wishes, according to their agenda. They freed the apostles so that they can continue to faithfully preach the gospel with clarity and boldness. And so that, that should be true for us as well. Why did God free you from your sins, from your chains, from your bondage? Right? It's so that you can be faithful to him in sharing the truth of God to others. We notice the Jewish leaders, are not, they're not done with them. Right? They're not done with them. There's this well-known and highly esteemed Pharisee that's introduced here named Gamaliel. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to unpack his words, but he basically says to leave these men alone for now because time will tell if this if their work is from God or from just simply men. And so his advice, you know, fortunately for the apostles, his advice was followed by the Jewish council, you know, but they still held them and beat them. They beat them before releasing them, right? So what, what, what follows next, and I'll, I have one more thought I want to share with you, but let's look at verse 40 and 41. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And this is right after Gamaliel speaks. Okay? They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Right? Again, a threat. Right? So this is just a, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to you. A little taste of what's going to happen to you. I'm going to beat you now. And then I want you to remember this. Something, something worse is going to happen if you keep on. So do not speak in the name of Jesus. And so verse 41, this is the response. Then they left the presence of the council angry? No. Bitter? No. 
Rejoicing, that's, that's hard for me to understand. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Right? That's a response. Um, so before I wrap the message up, I wanted us to consider what it meant for them to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus' name. Okay? Have you ever thought about how, how that's even possible? Right? To walk away from a serious beating and rather than expressing anger, hatred, rejoicing that you're counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus, is it, does that even register? I have to be honest. If I were unjustly punished, either by our local police department or by big tech, I'm pretty sure that my dominant emotion would be anger and bitterness, okay? which was difficult for me. I was reflecting upon this. It tells me that there's a pretty serious disconnect between what I expect in this life and what Jesus demands from me. You know, so it was humbling. It was humbling to actually uh, reflect upon this particular verse. You know, I'm wondering if I'd be able to truly rejoice if something like this ever happened to me. I mean, I hope so, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to need a lot of prayer from the church, a lot of support. I'm going to need a lot of voices reminding me of God's purposes and plans in the midst of the hardships we, we face in life, right? I think that's what the church is, at least one of its purposes. Like that's, what the, that's what you're for, brothers and sisters, to remind one another that this is something that we ought to expect. And our response should not be anger or bitterness or fear, but rather rejoicing that the Lord would count us worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. That's supernatural stuff right there. It's, it's not possible with just humans. You need, you need God's spirit. Um, but in the end, I think it ultimately, it boils down to the question of how much do we truly value what Christ has done for us? How much do we really value him? And do we truly count him worthy as someone we could freely give our lives to and even die for. Is that the Christ you believe in? Right? Is that the Christ you envision? Not too long ago, I watched Cobra Kai. Um, you guys know what that is? I think some of you do. For those of you who watched Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi growing up when you were younger, you would really enjoy Cobra Kai. Uh, the only bad thing about the series is the unnecessary amount of cussing they include, right? So if you, if you ever want to uh, watch it without the cussing or if you want your kids to watch it without all the cussing, uh, I recently heard about Video Angel. It's a su subscription service. I don't work for them. But, uh, it, <laughs> I think you, p you pay $10 and then, uh, you know, you can filter out whatever you want to, all the not, or the gratuitous sex or the, you know, violence. You can choose which ones you want out, right, the, the cussing. Um, I might consider getting that, you know, but in the third season, last episode, okay, they introduce John Kreese, uh, I mean, not that they introduce him, but they, they do a flashback of what he was like when he was a younger guy. John Kreese is the main antagonist throughout the series, okay, he's a nasty figure as an adult. 
He's like the worst kind of uh, instructor, okay? <laughs> worst influence for the kids. Um, but he used to be a decent guy, right? And so they do a flashback uh, kind of showing us what happened to him. Why, why is he the way he is, you know? And um, so the scene is his platoon, he was on a special mission, but, uh, you know, he was at the time very kind-hearted, and so he didn't want to basically sacrifice one of his, you know, uh, comrades or you know, fellow soldiers on the field. And so because of his mistake, uh, he, his whole platoon got captured, you know, um, and they were thrown into this prison, and um, each night uh, a Vietnamese soldier would come, and uh, he would choose two soldiers to fight over this massive snake pit. Basically, you fight to the death. Okay, whoever falls in the pit uh, just dies, and then the guy who survives goes back to the cell, and then, you know, repeat this, you know, uh, I guess, recreational thing for the Vietnamese guys. It was a recreation each, each night. They would repeat it every night. Um, and then one night, one, one of the prison guards comes, and he chooses the, the strongest member of the platoon, which was a captain. And so the captain is this confident guy. He's like, yeah, I'll, whatever, I'll go. I'm going to beat, beat that guy anyway. And then he chooses, uh, the other guy was a, a weak soldier, and you can tell the contrast in personalities. He's, very, he's like shaking, he's like nervous. He knows he's going to die. But in that moment, John Kreese steps in and says that he will fight the captain instead. Right? Uh, and so the other guy's relieved. Um, and so after a grueling fight, which could have very well gone the other way, Kreese uh, manages to survive. And at the moment, at that very moment, uh, the U.S. planes <laughs> fly across and start bombing the camp, and so basically the, all the prisoners are set free, and, and the, the weak soldier who was basically you know, shaking in his boots, he approaches Kreese and, and says, Kreese, I owe you, man. Right? You saved my life. Anything you need, I'm there for you. Your whole life, you hear me, Johnny? Your whole life, I owe you. And I, I know that is just, you know, uh, one corny scene from Cobra Kai, but this kind of thing actually happens in real life where people are rescued at the expense of someone else's life. And you may, you may know someone like that, right? especially those of you who, who serve in the army, right? But imagine waking up each morning thinking to yourself, right, the only reason I'm alive is because that soldier where that Navy SEAL gave up his life for me. Every single day you wake up and you're reminded again and again, right, the only reason I'm alive and able to enjoy my family, my friends, my kids, my home, my work, is because someone else chose to give his life for me. I think about that. My brothers and sisters, let me remind you that this is why we ought to consider Jesus worthy of our lives, right? Because we know, we know that, you know, that dynamic. Right? We, know, we know what he has done for us, right? The only reason you and I are alive and are able to not only enjoy the blessings in this life, but the blessings in the life to come is because he willingly gave up his life for us, amen? So, and if we, if we truly believe that, May we, as a church, remain faithful to our Lord, no matter what hardships may come. 
whether it be from within or without. Let's resolve to do what pleases God instead of what pleases man. And let's also resolve to rejoice that the Lord would count us worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. When things take a wrong turn for you, when life gets hard for you, right, don't question God's love, right, but rejoice that he would count you worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Right, that is a proper Christian response. Let's pray together. Dear Father, have mercy upon your people, have mercy upon the church in America, for it is plagued by the sin of envy, sin of greed, sin of lust. Lord, awaken our hearts and our minds that we would not indulge in our sinful cravings in such a way that would bring you grief. By the grace of God, you have freed us from the chains of sin and darkness in order that we may proclaim the good news of the gospel to others rather than live in fear or be driven by worldly pursuits. As we behold your glory and as we consider what you have sacrificed in order to save us, may we be a people who are eternally grateful and, and joyful to serve your purposes no matter what consequences we, we may face in this life. And as we resolve to remain faithful to your word and to rejoice, to suffer dishonor for your name, assure us of your goodness and love for us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'll stand together, give praise to God.